Let us pray together. We come before you, our Father, thanking you that you have given to us your word. And so as we open it, we pray, our God, that we might handle it with love and care and adoration of you for giving yourself to us. Help us today to know what you would have for us. We pray that you would provide peace in our lives as we do those things that will glorify you. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. I was in a Baptist church last week, and they don't know how to say amen. You know, they have the amens down real good. But it's, uh, it's okay. It was good to be with family last week, and we're uh, glad to be back in Florida. Uh, my wife especially. It was 24 degrees on Wednesday when we walked out of the house to go to the airport. So it was just a little cool. So it is my privilege uh, today to have the opportunity to open God's word with you. Indeed, we are on the third Sunday of Advent and um, we are on Godet Sunday. I think uh, Latin it's Godete but uh, that's okay. It'll work. Whichever one you want, uh, we have the pink or the rose candle or whichever, whichever color you like, uh, we can do that for you too. You know, we started this, and you notice that our acolytes are in black. This is a time, of, um, this is a time for us to be introspective and to take a look and see what's happening in our lives and see things here. But just uh, as it is in Lent, about halfway through, we, we have a time where the light springs up and reminds us that our Savior is, uh, is on his way and is coming. And this is that morning that we do that in the Advent season. The passage which I'd like to look at with you today is, um, is found in Philippians. It's the Philippians 4 passage. And... Um, what I'd like to do is that there are basically four commands given to Christians in, in this passage, or there are four words that are used in, in a command mode. There's actually five commands here, but one is repeated. One word is repeated, and I think that we can handle them together. It took us long enough to get through them with four, let alone five. We're not going to deal with verses eight and nine because I want you to have lunch. So um, we're going to take a look at this. Um, they, the people of, um, of Philippi were having difficulty understanding how God could be doing what he was doing. Paul was writing this letter from prison, and they were having difficulty in their fellowship with some kind of disunity and harmony, disharmony. And in the context just before, he writes to the church about two individuals that he would like to see reconciled. So in order to pick up the context, let me just read a couple of verses that go before it. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So when we come to this particular passage to look at, it's following right on his discussion that apparently two women, um, Euodia and Syntyche, are having some difficulty in understanding things alike, and there's there's something there that, that that's causing friction and 
intention, and, and thank God he doesn't tell us what it is. Otherwise, we could say, well, we're not doing that. We're okay. So he is looking at us and saying, listen, one of the things that happens in the church of Jesus Christ is that sometimes you have these things, and we need to work together in order to have peace. Well, he gives us commands, and I don't know about you, but uh, usually when the Apostle Paul gives us commands, it's probably not a bad idea to take a look at them and see what he has to say to us. When I looked uh, and looked at the Christmas uh, narrative back in Luke, one of the things that stood out to me as I, as I looked at these things were uh, there are actually two things here. And um, in uh, verse 10 it says, And an angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then he goes on down, and then uh, it says, uh, Suddenly there was a multitude of angels, and they were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, when we look at this passage before us, he talks to us about those with whom he would be pleased. And basically, we have four commands that are given here. And we notice that peace comes when we rejoice, number one, in the Lord. Number two, practice gentleness. Number three, avoid anxiety. And number four, pray. So what we'd like to do is just to look at that, this passage and kind of unpack that and see what God has for us today. So in verse 4, we basically have him saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Over and over in the book of Philippians, despite the circumstances in which Paul found himself and the people in Philippi, he tells them that they need to have joy. So he comes to this particular passage, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. By the way, that's where we get gaudé, because it's the Latin that means rejoice. And we have in the, in the Roman church, the intro, the, the coming in, is, is from this passage of scripture, and that's how it begins. The Greek word's a little different, but... They are both in the imperative, they're both commands, and they're both plural commands. In other words, he's not talking to an individual, he's talking to a whole group of people. All of the people that he talked about in, that in, that, in the verses right before it, he's saying, let us rejoice. We need to rejoice. So, he does it twice. Anytime Paul says something twice, you again probably want to take notice of it. The first um, command that he gives when he says rejoice in the Lord is a present where he says keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. The second imperative is actually a future because he knows that while we might get through the day rejoicing, there are going to be things in our lives that are coming along and we need to be reminded that we need to be rejoicing in them. So the future is, in the future, you keep on rejoicing. And I love the way he does this in every one of the verses. And you, you, you look at them as we see it. When are we to rejoice? Just sometimes when we feel like it. That's not what he says. But what does he say? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, 
if we would go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Father Don likes to remind us that it's one of the shortest passages in the scripture in the Greek, and it is, and the two words there in the Greek simply say the same thing, rejoice always. And the interesting thing is the, the, the Thessalonian letter is written toward the beginning of Paul's ministry. The Philippian letter is written toward the end of Paul's ministry, and things haven't changed. In the beginning, as he starts his ministry, he says, rejoice in the Lord. We know that he goes through a number of different things. Uh, he's shipwrecked. He's beaten. He's left for dead. And still he comes to the Philippian church, and he says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. And so in our lives, when we see things coming into our lives, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be things that we're not going to have opportunities to say, wow, I don't know. What we look at is we say, God, this is something that's there. I think the thing that we need to see in this is that when I say rejoice in the Lord, one of the things that we need to look at is he finishes that first, whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life? Those, my name's in the book of life. If I know Jesus Christ is my Savior, my name is in the book of life. So he finishes that, and who's in the Lord? Those of us whose names are in the book of life because we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Therefore, we ought to rejoice always, no matter what comes into our lives. The scriptures remind us that joy comes from God. In the book of Nehemiah, it says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. How in the world did Nehemiah get through all of those things that were going, going on in his life? There were people telling him that he ought not be doing this. They were telling him that he was too weak to do it, that the, people, that the walls that he was building were, were, would be knocked down if you just blew on them. And God says to him, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I think the aspect that he's looking at is when I know that I've got a God who is in and, and with me, I can do what needs to be done no matter what comes into my life. Now, do you think Paul said when he was writing this from the jail, man, am I glad I'm in jail? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. What he was saying was, I've got a God who knows what's happening in my life, and he hasn't left me. I'm still here. Over in, uh, uh, over in the school, I've had the opportunity to teach the 6th, 7th, and 8th graders and we looked at the book of Genesis, and we got through, and we looked at Joseph. How about Joseph? Now, we go over to Genesis chapter 50. Love it. I love it. His brothers think that they're going to kill that he's going to kill them. He's, remember, he is now second in command in Egypt. Only one person is higher in authority than Joseph, and that's Pharaoh. So the brothers come to him and say, Joseph, before dad died, he said that he hoped that you would be merciful to the things that happened. Sure, nothing much happened. They just threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. He went down into Egypt. He ended up in jail for three or four years. Not bad. Way to start life, isn't it? And yet, this is what he said because he recognized that the joy of the Lord is his strength. 
Even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good in order to preserve the numerous people as he is doing today. What did Joseph do? He looked back on it and said, I really would have rather not been put in that pit. I really would have rather not been sold into slavery. I really rather would not have been uh, uh, in prison. But you know what? I know and I knew then that God was in this. Do you know, do I know, that God is in the things that come into our lives? He's not surprised by any of it. On the way out, somebody said to me this morning, man makes, man makes plans and God laughs. You know, we were up in Pennsylvania. You can't believe how much stuff I was going to get done up there. I was going to get all of the papers that I had assigned, read. This sermon was going to be ready by, by the time I came back on Wednesday. And God laughed. But you know what? I rejoice in what God does. Romans 8.28 reminds us that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are called according to his purpose. Why is that? Because God is the one in there. With this command, we are reminded how God began a good work in us and will complete it to the end. I love what... John Piper says, John Piper says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. God is glorified in, most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. When I see that he's the God who is the God that controls the things that are around me. Nothing surprises my God in my life. Nothing. I can rejoice where God brings me because he knows what's best for me. The second thing he says to us and the second command that he gives us is practice gentleness to everyone. Now, did you see that? When are we to, get, when are, are we to rejoice? Always. To whom are we to show gentleness? Those people that are nice to us. Right? Nah, that's not what it says. What it says to everyone. And you know who's watching? The world is watching. The world is watching. And he says to me, and he says to us, practice gentleness. Well, that's a nice word, isn't it? Well, you know, the, this word is translated in actually a number of different ways. In one translation, it's translated reasonable, and it's John Gill, who was uh, a Baptist minister uh, in England during the 18th century, translated, translated to moderation, practice moderation. One commentator said no single word is adequate to translate this word. Involved is the willingness to yield one's personal rights and to show consideration and gentleness to others. That's the meaning of this word. Part of the problem of what we have in the United States is that we have people who think that they are more important than anybody else. And that's one of the reasons why we have people that are going in and stealing things from stores because, after all, they're more important than anybody else. Well, you know, it's easy for us to shake our heads there, but a question we have to ask ourselves is, do I show gentleness to everyone that I come in contact with, even people that disagree with me, even though they're wrong? You know? Just teasing. My wife tells me that she's always right. Therefore, there are apparently times 
that I'm wrong. So, I know. <laughs> At least she didn't say, <laughs> oh, she did. Oh, she did say, okay. Here we go. Could you keep your wife away from my wife? And then, So you can often tell what a word means simply by the company it keeps, can't you, when it goes along. Over in James chapter 3, verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, same word, same word, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Those are the words that surround the word gentleness. Sincerity, mercy, peace. And those are the things that we need to be looking at. As a matter of fact, in this passage, we're reminded of a great passage in Philippians chapter 2. One of the favorite, my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 2, this is what, how this passage begins. Uh, and again, once, once again, apparently there were divisions and difficulties within the church. And one of the things it says, if there, are any if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but to the interest of others. That's nice in and of itself, isn't it? But the interesting thing, see, he gives us an example of how it's to be done. You know what he gives? He gives none other than Jesus Christ himself. And this is the way that begins. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, all, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though all he in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. What happens? The very God of the universe, the second person of the Godhead, the one who in his word made you and me, becomes like one of us. And instead of like the angels bowing down before him in heaven, we walk by him on the streets and he looks like us. And nobody's saying, nobody's saying in sincerity, hail King Jesus. Only in mock do they do that to him. And he humbled himself even more because he was willing to go to death, even death on the cross. That's gentleness, my friends. That's when it's think, that's when the God of the universe says they're important to me. Important enough that I'm willing to die for them. Pretty good, isn't it? Not a bad example. I mean, after all, anybody here claim to be God? Yeah. And yet that's exactly what God did in the second person. To show that God was interested in us, he reminds us that the Lord is near. 
the second part of that verse there that when he says, um, let all men know uh, your forbearance, it uses the word forbearance, the Lord is at hand, that word forbearance, gentleness, is at hand, the Lord is at hand, the Lord's with us, the Lord's walking alongside of us, and you know what, he also said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, sometimes we just want to get back at people, and he's saying the time is going to come when the proper judgment is going to be taken, which is going to be taken place. So we have rejoiced in the Lord because he's the one. He's the one who knows everything that's happened. We're living in gentleness because he's the God who is near to us. Okay. Thirdly, he says, avoid anxiety about anything. I'm certainly glad he came to one that was just real easy to do. Aren't you? I mean, we can check this one off real easily. You and I both, we all know that that's not true. It's one of the biggest things that we have in our lives, isn't it? I was reading uh, in preparation for this sermon, and uh, uh, a, uh, somebody from Comprehensive Med Psych Systems, and I'm not sure what that is, wrote an article called The Roots of Anxiety, What Causes Anxiety Disorders? This is what it said. With 40 million people experiencing anxiety disorders in any given year, you may wonder where does all the anxiety come from. I haven't wondered that at all. There are many root causes, and most of the time, they are to do with our sense of self. They are to do with our sense of self. Perhaps you are anxious in the workplace because you don't trust that you'll succeed in your goals. Or maybe you're worrying about final exams because you don't think you're capable of pulling off a good grade. Maybe you're raised to be independent and self-sufficient so that when you encounter a problem at home, work, or school, you feel you can't ask for help. As a result, you try to do it all by yourself, even if you're crumbling inside. Even if you're crumbling inside. I love what, God, what, what Matthew says to us. Over in Matthew chapter 6, he lists a number of different things. And he comes down at the end, he says, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? Nothing there important, is there? Who needs to eat? Who needs to drink? Who needs to have clothing to keep warm, right? Don't worry about it. For it is the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles that he's talking about? Those people who do not that's what he's talking about there. He's not talking about uh, you and me as people who were non-Jewish. He's talking about the people who didn't know who God was. If we really know who God is and what he's powerful enough to do, anxiety should be, should be something that is not part of our lives. Now, believe me, that's not an easy thing. That is not an easy thing. And I'm not trying to suggest that it is. We have our signs that talk about faith over fear. What does that mean? It means that I've got faith that God loves me and cares about me. And he comes on in this passage, who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but strive first for the kingdom of God and, these, and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. 
strive first for the kingdom of God. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. But don't stop there and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. What's the word? Joy. Joy. Because I know that I've got a God who is capable of taking care of me. That doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out exactly the way I want it to turn out. But what that does mean is that I have a God who I can rejoice in, who, who is gentle and merciful to me, and now that anxiety as he comes alongside of me, I can know. And then I love the fourth command that he gives us in order that we can have peace with him and with each other. Because that's the goal of this passage, to have peace. Well, the fourth one, the fourth thing he says, but in everything by prayer. Let me see. What does he say? Let, let me see if, if, if have no anxiety about anything. Leave you any room? Doesn't leave a whole lot of room there, does it? Doesn't leave a lot of room. And then he says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious, he says. And then there is a heavy-duty contrastive, the but. In the Greek, it's not just, don't be anxious, therefore pray. No, instead of being anxious, the contrast is, we need to spend time in prayer. And he gives us these words. And, and, and by the way, let me see, uh, what are we, let me see, but uh, what are we supposed to pray about? Oh, here we go. Everything. Everything. Are you catching on here? Every part of our lives are wrapped up in this whole thing. Every part. We rejoice when? All the time. We're gentle. With whom? Everybody. We're anxious about, what are we going to, we're not going to be anxious about anything, but in prayer, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we're going to let, and involved in this whole thing, we have these terms, that strong contrastive is there, don't be anxious, but pray. You know what we do oftentimes? We try everything that we can possibly do, and then when that doesn't work, then we pray. It, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't do that. I do that. I do that. But he asks us to have prayer in everything. The four terms are great. There are two couplets, one man says. But you know what's wrapped up in this concept of prayer? What's wrapped up is, number one, there's worship. The, the first word has the concept of worship. The second one has, God knows. God, God, he expects us to tell him how we're feeling. He expects us to tell how we're feeling. And then we give thanks. Why in the world should I give thanks? Because number one, I've got a God who's able to do things. That's why. And so I lay out before him the things that I desire. He says, you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. Over in Peter, Peter tells us that the opposite 
the, uh, that anxiety is the opposite of trusting God or being humble before God. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. So when we pray, we're recognizing God cares for me. When we pray, we're recognizing that God has the ability to do what he promised to do. So that when I rejoice in the Lord, when I practice gentleness, when I avoid anxiety, and when I pray with thanksgiving, I can have peace in my life because of my relationship with God. First, I can rejoice in him and have peace with him. Then I can have peace with others who are around me who are also practicing the things that God has given us. You know, biblical peace is less, is, is more than just the absence of conflict. I like what Cornelius Pentagon says, peace is God's design for creation and universal flourishing, delight, and wholeness. You know what it is? It's what God gave mankind in the Garden of Eden. You know, the best part of the Garden of Eden was in the evening. It was in the evening. When man and uh, God got together and they took walks together. Isn't that great? And he says, what I want you to do is that I want you to fulfill my plan. And then what happened? Plan also says that sin is the vandalizing of shalom. The vandalizing of peace. The ripping away of any peace. Is that not what happened in the Garden of Eden? They had to worry about what they were going to be clothed with before that. They didn't worry about that. They had to be worried about what they were going to eat. They didn't have that before. As a matter of fact, they didn't have any difficulties. And after, after they sinned, guess what happened? There was enmity between the two of them. Wives are telling their husbands, I'm right, you're wrong. So it comes along. But Jesus Christ comes in. And he says, I want you to rejoice in me because I'm the one that gives you life. I want you to be gentle like me because I'm the one who knows the importance of things. I want you to not be anxious because you know that I'm a God who can take care of your needs. And I want you to be a, a person who's willing to say, God, I need you. I need you're the one I worship. You're the one that I want. I love the one passage over in Romans chapter 5 where he says that we have been justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God. We have peace with God. That peace comes from knowing that Jesus Christ came the first time to save us. And in knowing that and having salvation in that. We know that he's going to come the second time. And he's going to come to take us to be with himself so that we can go back to that beautiful garden of Eden. It's not going to be. Things aren't exciting because the streets are of gold. It's not going to be exciting because the gates are of pearl. The thing that's going to be exciting is that you and I are once again going to walk in the evening with our God. He's going to be glorified in all the things.
read the book of Revelation, what happens around the throne. The beasts fall before him. The angels fall before him. And we fall before him. Because now there's peace and love. Because Jesus.